This episode of Big Biology is sponsored by Hopkins Marine Station of Stanford University. Founded in 1892, Hopkins Marine Station, which is located on the Monterey Bay, 90 miles south of Stanford's main campus, is the oldest marine laboratory on America's west coast. Hopkins scientists work both locally and at field sites around the world, and their research addresses fundamental questions at every level of marine biology, from genes to ecosystems. For example, a team from Hopkins recently attached cameras to bluefin tuna to understand how they move through their environments. Another team is investigating how to restore tropical reefs using heat-resistant strains of coral. For this episode, we partnered with Hopkins Marine Station to highlight one of their extraordinary scientists. To find out more about research and educational opportunities, visit hopkinsmarinestation.stanford.edu. That's hopkinsmarinestation.stanford.edu. Here's the show. Wave-swept intertidal zones are highly variable environments, and the animals that live in them have to endure rapidly changing and often extreme conditions. For example, to withstand the extreme forces generated by breaking waves, mussels secrete super-tough fibers called byssus threads that anchor them to rocks. Another example, to withstand high body temperatures on sunny days, limpets have a variety of morphological and physiological adaptations, like red shells and heat shock proteins, that help them stay slightly cooler and keep their proteins from falling apart in the heat. Studying extreme events and how animals deal with them has become a pressing issue for biologists. That's because extreme events are happening more often and getting more intense. Organisms and the populations they comprise are getting hit by these extremes more often during their lives. Take, for instance, the record high temperatures that hit the Pacific Northwest this past July. Christopher Harley, a marine biologist at the University of British Columbia, estimated that over a billion barnacles, hermit crabs, and other intertidal organisms died in that heat wave. But so what? What extra challenge does a change in the frequency of climate extremes pose to life? For instance, are changes in the commonness of temperature extremes more problematic than changes in mean temperature? On today's show, we talk with Mark Denny, a professor of marine science and former director of the Hopkins Marine Station of Stanford, about just this issue. Mark studies the biomechanics and ecophysiology of animals living on the coast of the western U.S., focusing mostly on limpets and mussels. So we have a a good physical model, given what the environmental variability is, of what the body temperature is, all right? What we then need is a, uh, a good physiological model that says, okay, if my body temperature is varying like this through time, can I survive or not? Or how fast can I grow? Or how fast can I, or how well I can, can I reproduce? And again, we don't know the answers to that. One major topic of our chat is how to understand the performance of organisms when they live in highly variable environments. And it turns out that this is a complicated problem. That's because the performance of individuals almost always varies non-linearly with temperature. In other words, animals don't just breed or grow or metabolize energy faster directly with temperature. Usually these various forms of performance improve up to some optimum before flipping over and becoming worse. What this means is that average organismal performance can't be predicted accurately from average temperature. Performance at any particular temperature could be very different than performance at temperatures just a bit higher or a bit lower. This conundrum is known as Jensen's inequality, or the fallacy of the average. It means that to predict how animals will perform in a changing climate, you have to map out both the nonlinearities of their responses and estimate the actual patterns of environmental variation they experience in the wild. Yikes. Trust us, that is a lot of daunting work, considering how small these animals are and how fast their body temperatures can track ambient conditions. What to us might look like one uniform rocky coast is, to limpets and mussels, a menagerie of cool and warm microenvironments that they could avoid or exploit. 
A second major topic of our chat with Mark is to understand how many extreme events are the outcome of unusual coincidences of otherwise banal events. Limpid body temperatures, for instance, depend on air temperature, but also wind speed and tidal height and cloudiness and a bunch of other things that alone aren't problems, but together can really cause trouble. How can one predict the occurrence of such rare events? Well, you can't without gigantic data sets, and Mark's approach is to use reams of data collected over years to decades to predict extremes from the statistics of everyday patterns. Today on Big Biology, we talk with Mark about how intertidal animals cope with extremes and extreme changes in their environments, and how human exacerbation of climate change will affect future life in these already challenging habitats. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And you're listening to the first episode of Season 4 of Big Biology. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us on on Big Biology. It's it's great to have you on the show. Uh, I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time, and um, got to know some of your work via some of your some of your books that I've read, which I really love, including Air and Water, which is um, I was kind of gushing to Marty earlier about about that book and how often I, I go to it and uh, ecological mechanics, um, which is one of your more recent ones. So um, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, we have chosen a couple of papers about sort of thinking about thermal performance curves in the context of climate change. So it feels like you've done some really interesting work on thinking about extreme events. And so in other words, thinking about the extremes of, of thermal performance curves, and then also what the consequences are for organisms of um, how they experience the middle parts of their thermal performance curves. And, and just for our listeners to be clear about what a thermal performance curve is, this is something that, that thermal ecologists and thermal physiologists think about a lot. And it's a, it's a way of describing how organismal performance, so things like running speed or growth rate or fitness, rise with temperature reach some peak at a temperature we call the optimal temperature. And then typically that performance sort of falls down fairly rapidly on, on the far side as temperatures continue to rise. Um, so, so I want to just start by asking you about um, a, a broad question that has to do with how we think about rising temperatures and climate change. And that is, do you, do you think that, that the rising mean temperatures are what's important or is it changes in the variability around those those means that's more important for for temp, for organisms. Well, Art, I think that's that's one of the big unanswered questions, isn't it? Uh, that you know both are obviously important. So most of the time, uh, it's going to be you know the mean temperature with whatever the sort of standard variation around it is that that matters. I mean everything that we're seeing in terms of climate change right now, you know, it, it gets hotter every year and a little bit less rainy here in California, all that sort of thing. Um, but uh, uh, you know the, the the variance and the extremes that it can lead to uh, periodically are going to have really important events. Uh, so it's it's uh, somewhat comes down to what's what temporal scale you're talking about. So sort of on the on the average day to day scale, it's it's the average that's going to matter. Uh, on the evolutionary scale or the population scale, uh, my sort of suspicion is that it's the variation in the extremes that that leads to. Uh, that that's going it's going to matter, uh, but I think that answering that question is one of the big challenges that that uh, global change biologists have to have to figure out right now. And, and maybe just just lay out for us uh, in, in terms of different climatic variables. So, like for for example, temperature. So the means have gone up, 
are the are the variances just kind of trailing along with those or are the variances themselves actually expanding as the means go up? As I understand it, in most cases, the variance is actually going up as the mean goes up. So you, so it, not only does it you get hotter, but it also gets more variable, which leads to you know the problems now. Well, okay, well you know you have a really cold winter, and people say, oh my God, it, you know what's this bit with global warming? It's getting colder. Well, no, it's just getting more variable, and and the you know the a lot of the extreme weather you see is is, is part of that variability. Uh, so as, as I understand it, I mean, I haven't, haven't done the work on this, but as I understand it, uh, not only is the mean going up slowly, but the variance is going up as well. Uh, and so you have to take both of those into account. Mark, can I come back to something you said just a minute ago? And I'm almost reluctant to ask this question because it feels like we're going to steal the thunder for the rest of the show. But on the other hand, maybe it sets up everything else we talk about. You said that the, I think you said that the means are more likely to sort of influence the individual animal, I guess something at like an ecological scale and over the lifetime of an animal, but the extremes are population level sort of worries. Is Am I getting that right? And if so, can you unpack that a little bit? Within bounds, you've got it right. Okay. Um, so that what I'm, what I, when I think of extremes, uh, extremes are things that by my definition are rare. Okay. There are two different ways of, of defining extremes, either something that goes above some threshold or things that are statistically extreme and they're rare. For me, I usually work with the rare side of this. So uh, the extremes that I'm talking about in terms of, of uh, environment are things that might happen once every two or three lifetimes uh, for a population. So an individual is unlikely to see one of those extremes. But if you're keeping track of the population for you know, a few generations, it might get whacked back by one of these extremes. So on an individual scale, it, it, yeah, you could see it, obviously, but it's, it's uh, unlikely. Whereas for the population or the, or the longer term sort of thing, it, it might be the extreme that, that, that matters. Okay. And that's interesting in light of you know, the point that, that Art was just, just picking on, asking the question about what's happening to the variance as the mean increases. So if I'm putting these pieces together, the average individual is more likely to see these rare events because the variation you know, is, is greater than it used to be. So the mean's changing, but then the that those extremes are becoming sort of more common for the average individual. Right, 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 right. And, and more, more likely is the word, but it may still be unlikely, even though it's more likely. Mm-hmm. Um, you also mentioned evolutionary consequences. So if we look at the, say, the physiology of organisms, how much of that physiology is shaped by this sort of day-to-day experience of means or modest variation versus these rare events? Uh, <laughs> Art, you've got a knack for asking big questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's big biology. That's what we do. Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> but, but I wanted to know. Well, and we all want to know. But that's where, I mean, one of the themes that I think is going to run through this conversation is that physiologists need to really get on it and answer some of these basic questions. Uh, because right now, I mean, that's, that's one we, we really don't know uh, from a physiological standpoint. I mean, the one that I come back to is if you go out to the, the limpets that live on our shore. So here we are in California, and when the tide goes out, and it's not a foggy day, which is somewhat rare in on itself, but if it's a, a good sunny day, things will heat up uh, on a good low tide. And so uh, uh, one of the limpets here, it's territorial. It, it can't run into a crack or a crevice uh, when it gets hot. It just sits on its territory wanting to defend that. So it has to put up with whatever the temperature is. And the temperatures can sometimes get quite high. But if you, so we've got measured what the temperature is out there, you know, for seven, 10 years, something like that. So we know what the average annual high temperature is. And it might be around 30, 31 degrees centigrade, something like that. Then you bring the guys into the lab, heat them up and see at what temperature, what temperature they can take, what their temperature 
what their thermal tolerance is. And it's about seven degrees higher than what they would see in an average year. Well, okay, how does, how does something uh, uh, through evolution acquire a thermal tolerance for a temperature that in its lifetime it's unlikely to ever see? And so we ran a, a model on this a while ago. And the answer seems to be there that, okay, every few generations, you get the, the population gets whacked. So given some variation, genetic variation among limpets, the ones that survive that big bottleneck are the ones that by, just by chance had a higher thermal tolerance than they otherwise would. Uh, and then the population goes on, then you whack them again. And, and through time, at least in our model, uh, through a couple thousand years, you evolve a, a, a thermal tolerance that's about six or seven degrees above what you would see in any average year. Uh, so in that case, it's those, those occasional bottlenecks every few generations, uh, along with you know, the genetic mutations that, that contribute to the variation, uh, that give you that. Um, so in that case, uh, it, at least it is pretty obvious to me that they've responded to the extreme events, uh, which are, are on a longer uh, time scale than the, what they would see at, on, on an average, in an average lifetime. Are those limpets, you think, the exception or the rule? Because in a way, this could be a form of good news for climate change, or this is latent phenotypic variation that maybe is out there in those in populations. Well, Marty, you've got an act for asking good questions too. <laughs> so if, if we if we had this sort of information for more species, we could answer that question, right? But uh, uh, it, it hasn't been hasn't been done. Um, so this is it, the questions you're asking are ones of uh, what. How to generalize from these these sort of single experiments or single thought experiments, and what that's going to take is, unfortunately, I think, uh, a bunch of uh, physiologists doing some some sort of grunt work to do it for another species and another species and another species or another get the work physiologist yeah get the work <laughs> physiologist because you know, we we won't know the we won't know the answer to those generalities unless we test it on enough things to find out. So, so I'm, I'm smiling here because um, your description of the limpet system is um, remarkably similar to this thing I've been working on the last few years here in Montana, which is the uh, thermal ecology of leaf mining caterpillars on aspens. And we found that the, the highest temperatures that they can withstand are about seven degrees higher than the sort of typical things that they've experienced over the past four or five years. It looks like they're not even remotely close to those limits most of the time. And I, I wondered about, you know, is this some legacy of of just rare, high, very high temperature events? I mean, the, the alternative is that somewhere else in their range, they're getting smashed regularly by very high temperatures. And somehow that, you know, that physiology is dispersing across the landscape and we're seeing a legacy of selection somewhere else. Right. And I, I don't I don't know what the answer is. But, and I don't either. And, and while we're on the subject, I mean, a lot of this depends on how often those those uh, events occur, because uh, uh, there has to be some cost to maintaining a high thermal defense. If there weren't, everything would just everything could, could go up to boiling and they'd be fine. Um, at least in our model. I mean, we had had I mean, just a, a really I mean, simplified genetics model into it. Um, but uh, a, a, an extreme event will. A huge bottleneck, so the average will jump up because the only surviving ones have high. high but there's some cost to that. Uh, it will it, gradually be selected again, but it'll decay much slower than it goes up. So you're setting yourself up for this ratchet. Uh, so depending on how long it is between events, uh, if it's a really long time, it just come right back down. And you won't go anywhere. So to, to, to ratchet it, it, it to what that seven degrees is is the the balance point between uh, uh, ratcheting up and, and and gradually coming back down. And again, we, I would love to know what the generality of that is. Uh, I mean, are, does, do plants uh, and, and caterpillars have the same sort of ratchet up, ratchet down as limpets? Be really important to know. 
Uh, but uh, we, I don't, I don't think we know yet. Hmm. Mark, I'm going to try to tie these two pieces together. The when we're talking about ratcheting up in these seven degrees, is that the optimal temperature, or are we talking about that's the temperature, the sort of lethal temperature, right? Yeah, 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 the, the lethal. So, what is the? I mean, again, this might be a scenario where the answer is more data, but what is the what is the way to think about this? I mean, is it that there's some latent capacity to move around, or are we only talking about I mean, it's not the optimal, right? Because it's just whether or not it's viable. What's the relationship between this window and optimal? I mean, do you expect over time that the optimal has also shifted up or would the optimal also shift up? Or is this just sort of that last little capacity of not dying? Um, I don't think the optimum would necessarily shift up because the I mean, <laughs> optimum is a really slippery term. So in, in, in those thermal performance curves, calling that peak the optimum, I think is misleading. Uh, it, it, it's it's the max it's the temperature at which you get maximum performance, uh, but it's not necessarily the optimum temperature because optimum. I mean Ray Huey a while ago and one of his students uh, uh, showed that you know suboptimum is optimum. Uh, in a very in a, in a variable environment, uh, it, you're better off uh, uh, hedging your bets by having your living in an environment where the temperature is slightly below your average performance, and then taking variability into account. If you're at your peak performance and the temperature goes up, that that steep uh, as, as Art described that steep fall, you're screwed. Yeah, yeah. So so optimum is a is a a, a slippery term. But I wouldn't expect the optimum temperature to shift in, in based on the extremes. Well, let's let's turn to um, a little more explicitly about your ecological monographs paper in 2009, and you um, develop a way f- to predict extreme events. And, and you make this kind of amazing argument, I think, that extreme events often reflect... Uh, coincidence of sort of multiple underlying, much more banal events, right? So uh, there are many, many sort of underlying things that control the experience of any one organism. And sometimes just by chance, those underlying things come together in a way that create extreme conditions for for individuals. So how, how did you come upon that idea and, and how have you developed that? Oh, we came upon it because we saw an extreme event. <laughs> so, uh, you know, January of 2001, I think it was, could have the year off, um, uh, we got hit with a, uh, uh, an extreme wave event here at Hopkins Marine Station. So we're right on the coast, uh, but we're be sort of on the backside of a peninsula. So and it's not heat wave. This is actual waves. Oh, no, oh, yeah, yeah, no, these are not heat waves. These are water waves, ocean waves, <laughs> okay. yeah, the, the yeah, surfing yeah. sort of waves. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we, we, you know, we're reasonably exposed. I mean, waves coming in out of the west or northwest come right into the property. Uh, but we weren't on the open coast. Uh, but we had a day uh, where I came in and we were just getting hammered. And we were having waves 20, 25 feet high, uh, crashing on the shore, rearranging boulders down on the shore. Uh, so we got out there with our radar guns and recorded the whole thing and started thinking, okay, well, how, how often have we just seen something that, that you know, recorded something that, you know, uh, is a once in a lifetime kind of thing. We were, you already had the, the science paper all written up and whatnot, you know, and, so, and, and so, okay, well, how, how often does something like this happen? Uh, and started thinking about it and all the usual statistics that we could throw at it just gave us ridiculous answers. Like this was a once in 10,000 year kind of thing. You know, at that point, science was looking really, really good, right? Um, uh, but then we, we started thinking about, okay, this wasn't just just high waves. 
it was highways and they just happened and they, they lasted for maybe an hour, hour or two sort of thing. Uh, was, these are some waves from out in the Gulf of Alaska that, you know, waves can go incredible distances on the ocean. So they came down our way from Alaska and crashed in our shore. But they happened, those two hours of, of really high waves just happened to coincide with the highest tide of the year. So it was, it was a low pressure system. So, uh, you know, the, the low pressure sucks the water up and it was on top of that, the highest celestial tide of the year. So uh, the effect of those waves on the shore uh, depends on how, how deep the water is. Uh, waves break when the water depth is equal to the wave height. So the, the higher the tide, the closer to the shore the waves can get before they break. At that point, they start losing energy, but, but if they're really close to the shore, they just slam right on the shore. So uh, it was that coincidence between uh, really high waves and a really high tide uh, that, that caused that event. Either, either one by itself wouldn't, would have been notable. Um, so we started look, looking back, okay, how do you take into account that sort of coincidence? And that's where, that's where the whole idea of, of this environmental bootstrap started. When you start thinking about it, certainly not all really extreme events are, are caused by coincidences. Okay, if Earth gets hit by an, an asteroid, okay, there's no coincidence. Well, there's just one coincidence there. We, we cross paths with the asteroids and that's, that's it, okay. But it's, it's, it's not multiple things that are contributing to it. But if you start thinking about environmental things that affect biology, quite often it's, it's the, the coincidence of a bunch of normal things all coming into phase. Uh, that caused one of these extreme events. Uh, so it was it was that wave event that got us started. Yeah, and and so could so could you you know sort of back calculate what would have happened if, um, for example, the tide had been you know medium or low, and then how much less force would have come in from those those waves on onto the intertidal organisms? Uh, it would have been considerably less. I mean, I, I can't I haven't I don't have it on the top of my head, but it, yeah, it would have been. I mean, those things happen all the time. We, we get high, well, I mean, not all the time, but, but uh, the, the height of those waves was only, I think, the, the top two or three of the year. So it wasn't the highest waves. Uh, but it was just the highest. By far the most destructive. Yeah, by far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is, as a basic scientist, this is incredibly intriguing. I mean, it's a different way to think about environmental variation because usually if you do it sort of in, in a single form at a time, uh, it's just, you know, cool and maybe breezy or whatever it is. But you take this constellation of things and it becomes... Um, worrisome. There's another example in, in your ecological monographs paper that you talk about, about the sort of coincidence of heavy rains and fires in New Mexico Canyon. So can you go through that one really quickly, what it meant for stream insects? Just, you know, another example. This is not just coastal marine organisms. Right. So uh, this is down in the southwest where the work was done. So you've got canyonlands out there. And if, it get, if you get a heavy rain on a normal year, uh, the rain falls on the land, okay, and the, and the plants sort of absorb some of it and keep it from really, really fastly trickling down into the streams. So you can have a pretty good rainfall, uh, but no particular flood in the streams. So there are the, these lodic insects, that, you know, the, the uh, larvae of the insects are in the stream, you know, doing whatever they do, feeding, I assume. Um, as long as the water it doesn't get too, running too fast, they're fine. So uh, rainfall, big rainfall wouldn't necessarily do it. But then you also have fires. So if a fire comes through and destroys the, the vegetation and then you get the rain, uh, the, the vegetation doesn't slow down the flow. You get a flood and, and, and the lodic insects get wiped out. Now, if you wash all the insects out, there are no adult insects to come back and re repopulate the stream. So it, apparently it took you know, you know, multiple years for this thing to return to normal. Uh, so it was the coincidence of a fire and then big rains, uh, which caused, and presumably the fire and the, and the rains were, were you know, separate events. 
Uh, so uh, it, it, that, that sort of uh, normal things happening, but all, all happening, in this case, both happening at the same time, led to that extreme uh, flood and, and a big change in the ecology of the streams. Right. And in the context of climate change, the expectation would be that these compounding events, again, are going to be more common. It's not just extremes. It's these cocktails of extremes. So yet another way to worry about climate change. Right. Yeah. So if each individual thing happens more often, uh, just by you know, just by chance, they're gonna the comp- the combination is gonna happen more often, and there you go. Just a quick aside, I wanted to mention that we had Sean Carroll on uh, to talk about his book on his new book on chance, and he talked about some of the chance things that happened with the asteroid hitting the Earth 65 million years ago, and and there was a coincidence there that I didn't I didn't know about till he he laid it out, and that is that the asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula. And that's one of the few places in the world where it could have thrown up as much material of the, the, the kind that was the worst for, you know, ecological situations around the world. And that, you know, in all likelihood, the asteroid should have landed in the Atlantic or Pacific. I mean, the Pacific, because it's the biggest body of water on the planet. And if it had, we probably wouldn't be here because the dinosaurs wouldn't have gone extinct. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Kind yeah. of amazing. Yeah. So, but that, that is a different kind of... Uh, coincidence for sure um so so i wanted to ask just just to sort of statistically speaking maybe if you can explain how, how you actually go about this so you have measurements of say a time series of, of a set of underlying events and you sample those for some amount of time and then you statistically ask if those things are sort of varying randomly how often does the right combination of, of things come together to create a, an extreme compound event. How much do you have to sample and for how long um, do you have to get those underlying time series in order to get reliable estimates? Yeah, well, th- this is, you've, you've hit the crux of it again. Uh, so the problem with extreme events, at least from a statistical definition of extreme, is that they're rare. So uh, in order to, to say you wanted to have re- repeat examples of this, you might have to gather data in the real world for hundreds of years to see the two or three that actually happen. And that's not going to happen on, during your career or my career. So you need some way of, of extending the timeline of this. Um, for things that are just purely chance, you're, you're screwed. There's, there's no way of, of getting that. But for these coincidence things, you, can, you aren't trying to record for each individual factor the most extreme uh, level of that factor. What you're looking for is the coincidence of things within their normal bounds that combine to give you a combined extreme. So what you need is a long enough time series to, to see what, what those sort of normal variations are in each individual factor. Uh, so for the, for the, uh, the, the best example I have that, that will, will sort of uh, fit with this is, is the, the temperature that near tidal things see. Uh, and so uh, what we needed was a long enough time series of all the things that go into that, the air temperature, how bright the sun is, how those vary seasonally. So we had, at, at, I think at that time, a seven-year record of those sorts of things, which turned out to be long enough that we could capture the, the kind of variation that you normally see. So there's, there's predictable variation. Uh, I mean, it's hot in the summer and, and, uh, and cool in the winter, even here in California. And uh, so you can, seven years was enough to get sort of an average picture of what, what the, the, uh, the environment does on a seasonal basis. Uh, we are trying to look at, you know, global climate change here. So seven years is way too short to see any, any of that. And we took any, any sort of trend like that out. But given that sort of 
of uh, average variation in each one of the factors, uh, you can then go back and look at, okay, subtract that annual variation out from your actual record, and what remains is, is the, 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 the uh, random variation around that average. And it's those two things that you need to, to do the, the, this sort of bootstrap approach. Uh, a good estimate of what, what the seasonal variation is, so you need a long enough record to get that, and then uh, that record of what the, what the variation is around the, uh, the average to deal with the, the, the chance part of this. Got it, got it. So my, my reaction is that, that that's intimidatingly long, right? I mean, <laughs> there's not going to be that many people out there that have seven-year, you know, finely enough sampled data sets to be able to do something like this. So, so that, that's one problem. The other problem is, is that long enough to really make confident predictions, you know, out to a thousand or ten thousand years. Two two things here. Yes, you're right. It, it is it, it perhaps intimidating not to have that length of time series. But if what we're talking about are things that happen on a, a decadal or or a century sort of scale, uh, putting in seven to ten years of measuring what the background is like is is cheap, compared to waiting around for a century or two to know what's going to, going to happen. Okay. Um, and now whether whether it's whether it's accurate or not uh, is. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> predictions are made and sealed. <laughs> That's one of the good good sides of making these predictions about rare things is, is you know, I'll be long gone before it's really been tested pretty well. <laughs> but uh, to give you an example of how well it can work, um, uh, if you have time for a serendipitous story. Uh, so way back when, on Halloween, uh, Hopkins Marine Station, uh, back then I had a, a, long, a long beard. And one of the secretaries brought in some of this hairspray, so it's silver hairspray. So I thought it'd be fun to, to silver my beard. And it was sitting there looking like Zeus in my office, smiling away. <laughs> and a guy, named, a guy named Ron King wandered in. I hadn't, didn't know him before. I haven't seen him since. We had a good, he was an aeronautical engineer. I had a good conversation. And he, he put me onto the statistics of extremes uh, and pointed me at a, 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 a paper in the gray literature by Jay Cox and Canila about testing uh, airplane engines. And uh, if you're, I, mean, I just flew on an airplane yesterday, and this always occurs to me. What you don't want on an airplane is a pilot to come and say, okay, we've just lost an engine. We'll try to restart it. You know, don't worry, everything will be fine. Oh, boy, okay. Uh, well, it, it, engines can flame out if, it, it's a big fan, one of these, these, these engines. And turbulence and it can just combine on the front of this fan to stall it out. And uh, you don't want that to happen. Uh, so they design engines where they think it's not going to happen. And how they test that is they put the engine in, a, in an environment where they can really measure what the turbulence is like in the front of the engine and measure that turbulence, the variation, the random variation there for 10 minutes. 10 minutes, okay. And from that 10-minute sample, they estimate the number of flameouts in, in, in 1,000 hours of flying time. And they've done that for a bunch of engines. And when they extrapolate from their, from their data, uh, I think there was one engine that didn't. They all fall into this the 95% confidence limits on the exp on the on the, the extrapolations. I can't decide if that's inspiring or horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably. Uh, well, I hope it's a little bit inspiring, because uh, uh, just because of how these statistics work, you're dealing with log time and, and weird things like that. Uh, that you can be fairly reasonably off in the short term and still have, uh, have reasonably exact uh, estimates in the long term. So to answer your question, is Art is I think they're, they're, the estimates should be pretty good. Uh, and, and there's ways of coping with it. There's only as good as, as your assumptions going in, but there are ways of coping with, with slight variations in the assumptions that should be able to take into account. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me ask about one more assumption that's sort of a technical thing, and then I'll be quiet about this. But do you take into account correlations among the underlying 
time series. Yes, yes. And that, that's one of the, the trick, the, uh, the fun things about this environmental bootstrap approach is it, it takes advantage of a computer rather than the, the mathematics. Apparently the mathematics of, of trying to deal with these things, so you, uh, cross-correlation in multi-event multi sort of extremes is just nasty and open to, open to some real question. But what we do is, is if we've got a bunch of factors, uh, we've all recorded them on, this, on the same, for the same seven years, for instance. And each one has its, its seasonal variation or whatever variation, and we got all the, all the, uh, variation, the random variations relative to that. But when we go back and resample, which is the way we, we predict the long term of this, we resample each one of those at the same time. So that if there is any cross-correlation there, it's in the sampling. We, we, don't, we may never know what it is, uh, and it doesn't really matter, but, but it, it's, in, it's inherently in the way we treat the data. Uh, so yes, it can be really important, but we don't need to worry about it. So I can see the faces of my graduate students and their eyes rolling going, please, can we, can we talk about animals? <laughs> they so often are just, well, where, where's, where's the biology? Um, can we can we take these and apply it to your work specifically on limpets? And I mean, two of the forces that you worked on extensively are wave action, which we touched a little bit, and then how they're dealing with extreme temperatures as the, as the tides go out and such. So, how strong does a wave have to be to dislodge? Well, let's go go with the muscles. And how do muscles attach? Why do they attach, or can they attach as strongly that they would never fall off? I mean, why has an why has an evolution be, been able to? perfect the attachment mechanism for the, the average muscle? Uh, well, they, they pretty much can put up with it. So that uh, even, even an extreme wave event is, is you know, it's only going to knock off, you know, a minor fraction of most muscles. Um, so they, they're pretty good at, at hanging on. And they've got, you know, the, the bissel threads that they have, they can, they can adjust their, uh, their tenacity or how, how, how strongly they can attach to the rock. So they're pretty good at putting up with that. Um, and we've got a, you know, a reasonable reasonable mechanic, mechanistic sort of uh, uh, understanding of how that goes on. Uh, but I'd like to switch from, from them to the limpets, where this was probably more, uh, I mean, most, most human beings don't worry about putting out threads and attaching to whatever they're, they're sitting on at that point. But most people uh, at least are used to thinking about how hot you can get before you die. Uh, so with, with you know, global warming, uh, that, that's the big one. And again, uh, the, phys the physiologist in the audience, brace yourself, I'm gonna rag on you again, because it's, this is where, where you need to get to work. Um, so uh, for a limpet on, on the rock, or a muscle, whatever, okay, uh, what matters to them is their body temperature uh, and, and how that varies through time. But their body temperature depends on how bright the sunlight is shining on them, how hot the hair is, how fast the wind's blowing, whether they've been splashed by a wave, all the sort of factors that we've been talking about that have to combine. All right. Uh, so where the biology comes in is taking those environmental inputs and, and then uh, having a model, uh, either physiological or, or physical, uh, that gives you a biological output. Uh, so for us, this was a, a, a heat budget model where you take all the different ways that he can get into and out of a limpet, uh, and they're small enough so they're always at equilibrium with their environment. So uh, their body temperature has to be at, at a certain level where the energy coming in is equal to the energy going out. So if they're heating up by the sun, some of that, that heat energy has to get conducted to the rock underneath or, 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 or convectively given up to the air. And you can figure out how hot they have to be for that to happen. So we have a, a good physical model, that, given what the environmental variability is, of what the body temperature is. 
All right. What we then need is a, a good physiological model that says, okay, if my body temperature is varying like this through time, uh, can I survive or not? Or how fast can I grow? Or how fast can I, or how well I can, can I reproduce? And again, we don't know the answers to that. Uh, so you can, you can bring an animal into the lab and, and heat it up and say, okay, it can survive. If I heat it this fast for this long, it'll, it'll, it'll die. Uh, but uh, answering the question, okay, what if I heated it a little bit slower to a little lower temperature, would it still die? Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, okay. So uh, having a good physiological model that you can plug that body temperature into to come up with a biological outcome of survive or not, or reproduce or not, is, is again where physiologists need to step up and, and give us those sorts of predictions. Now, I, I fully realize that that's, that's a big ask. I mean, the physiology is ungodly complicated. So asking of a system, okay, if I, if I poke you this way, what are you going to respond to? Uh, how are you going to respond? Uh, that's a big ask of physiologists, but that's what we need. What do you think? I mean, maybe it's an uncomfortable question, and, and if you want to pass, that's okay. But what do you think the first sort of three things the, that physiologists can do to produce, you know, the most useful data for the development of this inclusive physiological model? What would you want? Uh, to to uh, fiddle with their their uh, experimental design. So right now, what people do is they they bring animals, or let's include plants here, just because it'd be ecumenical. Um, so you bring an organism into the lab, <clears throat> hold it at a constant temperature, which is presumably benign, and then suddenly jack it up to another temperature and see what happens. Uh, and it, it dies or it, it doesn't. Or its physiology, it produces heat shock proteins or it doesn't, okay? Uh, that's the standard method of, of testing these things. Uh, that's, that's useful to a certain extent, but not, not in terms of predicting what's going on in the field. So what you need to do is bring animals either in from the field, having known what their temperature was out there, or bring them to the lab, give them some sort of known variation, which is realistic, and then give them some sort of realistic uh, increase in temperature and see what happens. Uh, and, and you need, well, it, it's, it's problematic because you need to do that a bunch of different times and a bunch of different heating rates, a bunch of different temperatures, a bunch of different things you're going to measure, uh, and do enough of that huge matrix of different, different possibilities and come up with a, a, a landscape of, of responses. Okay, so is it the realism that's most important and the sort of thing that's missed in the past, or is it this sort of capturing all of that all of that landscape, really describing the full landscape as opposed to you know producing data that are reflective of extremes or, or whatever the interest might be? I mean, what's the what's the major underlying motivation for the difference between you know what you're proposing and what the tradition is? Well, the major difference is that physiology is, is, depends on history. Uh, so how physiologically capable you are uh, depends on, on what you've seen in the past, um, at, at least to a certain extent. And there's an infinite number of things that individuals could have seen in the past, right? And so that rapidly becomes a super complicated problem. Right. Uh, and, and again, it comes down to we need to make some, we need to find some generalizable rules. And in order to do that, we need enough information to base it on. And at it, it, one level, it'd be really nice to be able to do this completely mechanistically. I know what your genes are, and from that, we're going to predict what, what's going to happen, and that, that's not going to happen. I can continue to be reminded of that you know, E. coli has been studied incredibly well. Uh, do you guys know when, when the E. coli genome was, was sequenced? It was sometime back in the 70s or something like that. Okay. Yeah, that's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I've talked to a few um, molecular bio cell biologists about this and asked them the question, okay, we know what, the, what the, the sequence is for E. coli. Can you predict 
you know, what is thermal tolerance? And, they, you know, they say, no, you know, it, it, we, we can't, given that little, that incredible knowledge about this small organism, we still can't predict what's, what's going to happen to it in a novel situation. So you, you gear that up to the, the genomes of plants and animals and humans, and, and uh, it, it's incredibly complex. So doing it from a strictly mechanistic point, which would be really wonderful. I, I think we're fully on board with that. We, yeah, <laughs> very much. <laughs> we talk a lot on the show with people about, um, you know, how hard it is to go from genes to phenotypes and sort of what, you know, the, the vast multitude of other kinds of information that bear on what the phenotypes are that actually come out. And much of that information is is genetic, much of it's not genetic. And, you know, how those things come together is a, a complicated nut to crack. Oh, totally complicated. So the, the backup then is to just, okay, poke it in enough different ways to be able to predict, okay, if I poke it somewhere near the, here, uh, what's going to happen? And again, that's, that's just basic work that it needs, to, it needs to happen. So um, we, we want to talk also about your 2019 paper in conservation physiology super interesting and you you make one of your core ideas there understanding how jensen's inequality affects how we think about the sort of performance of individuals and the performance of populations you know so those individuals are making up populations and how we can predict the performance of those in over time in varying environments and over space where there's spatial variation in environments so can we just start, can you just lay out for us what is Jensen's inequality and why does it matter? Yeah, it, uh, the alternate name for it is the fallacy of the, of the mean or the fallacy of the average. Yeah, which is probably a better phrase, right? Because it actually describes what it is. <laughs> probably much better. I mean, who the hell, who the hell was Jensen? Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, Jensen was a, a Danish mathematician, apparently. Um, so the, the idea here is that uh, human beings have a, have a, a tendency to extrapolate on based on the average okay you you take the average if the average goes up the, the response is going to go up somehow proportional to what you see all right so jensen's inequality is it's a he's pointed it's about it's a, a function or a property of non-linear functions things that ha don't happen linearly so if you increase the temperature of, of an ectotherm a cold-blooded animal its meta metabolic rate doesn't go up linearly with temperature goes up exponentially with temperature uh, so the hotter it is the much faster you you go okay um, a whole, just about anything in biology or physiology, if you change what the input is, the output doesn't change linearly with it. Okay. So it, it's those sort of nonlinear functions that we're talking about. Uh, they're incredibly, uh, uh, they aren't rare by any means. I mean, Tom Daniel once told me that, you know, thinking of, of uh, things that are defining linear and nonlinear is like splitting the world into bananas and non-bananas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one's pretty specific and the rest of them includes it's everything. everything. <laughs> okay. So the, the nonlinear basically includes everything in biology. Uh, so stated uh, uh, in words, Jensen's inequality is that if you go out and, and measure the performance of something at the average temperature, say, you're going to get a performance. If you go out there and measure its average performance, when the, te when the temperature varies around that average, you're going to come up with a different answer. So the, the, the average of the performance is not equal to the performance at the average temperature. How, how the two vary depends on uh, the shape of the curve. Uh, so if you have a curve, let's, again, let's take temperature. So as, as temperature rises, if performance, if that curve is, is increasing, so it's concave upwards, it's accelerating. Uh, then uh, the performance at an average 
temperature is going to be less than the performance when the temperature varies. Uh, you, you actually, things are better if the temperature varies because the little bit of time spent at the, at the higher temperature more than outweighs the little bit of time you spend at the lower temperature because the curve is, is trending upwards. Okay. If the curve is, is concave downward, you get the opposite effect. Uh, so uh, knowing how the curve is shaped and how much variation there is that you're dealing with uh, tells you how the performance varies separate from looking at, okay, let's put the animal at its average temperature and use that as it, it, our metric of its, what its performance is. I, I think I have another caterpillar example of that first thing you said about um, if an organism is on the sort of rising exponential part of the curve, it does better when there's actual variation in temperature than you would expect. Uh, so, so spring caterpillars, which I study, often are too cold and uh, they get occasional pulses, you know, for a few hours of high temperature. And that seems to have a disproportionate effect on how fast they feed and grow. And I think that's that, that very effect right there. Yeah, another one to do with, with uh, not so much caterpillars, but the insects that have larvae that overwinter. Um, that, you know, they're, they're cold in the winter, so you think their metabolism would be low and their, their food uptake would be low. Uh, but if you get spikes of, of temperature, so there's variation in temperature there, uh, because the Q10's pretty high, uh, they eat up too much of their food or their 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 reserves, uh, so the variation there uh, it increases their metabolic input, which decreases the time they can survive. So slight variations, they they burn through reserves and they don't they don't make it. So it can be a good thing or a bad thing depending on how you look at it. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. These are some of my favorite topics. I do feel, though, that the average listener, we don't have any visuals here. This is going to get, this is super complicated really quickly. So let's let's try to, to be explicit about why we care about Jensen's inequality. And I thought one of the neat things that really comes across strongly in your paper is that it is a sort of, uh, I mean, it's, in, it's not an accident. I think it's in conservation physiology, right? That if you want to understand the implications of climate change for individuals in a population, the manner by which you collect the data has pretty profound implications on what you're going to do with those data, right? So you want, you want to try to put that together to link everything we talked about in the past with Jensen's inequality? <laughs> oh, no, not much of a big ass there. <laughs> big, big lift for you there, Mark. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the, the, the deal here is that there's, there's variation within an individual. So a, a thermal performance curve you're, you're taking is sort of, here's how that one individual works. Uh, but then there's also going to be variation among individuals, both in, in their physiology, but also in, in, the, in, the, in how they experience the environment. Okay. So if you look at, uh, uh, say, again, I go back to mussels on the, on the shore because they're, they're for people who haven't seen them, mussels are you know, these little, little clam-like things that sit in the shore, and they pack themselves into, into a, 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 almost a rug on the shore. Um, so and the shore sort of has some topography to it. Uh, part of that rug might be in the shade when the other part's directly seen by the sun. Uh, so the variation in temperature among individuals can be as high within a square meter of, of the shoreline as you get up and down the whole West Coast, for instance. Brian Helmuth has done measurements up and down the West Coast. And the variation he sees up and down the West Coast, we can equal that with among individuals in a square meter of the, the, the marine bed, of the, the muscle bed at Hopkins Marine Station. Uh, so there's this, this individual to individual variation they need to take into account as well as the how the individual varies through time in in what temperature it sees and because there's variation there uh it, jensen's inequality applies to all of these things so you can't just say okay here's what here's the temperature the the average here's the maximum temperature on average among the individuals in a population 
and say, okay, here's what's going to happen. You have to take into account that there's all this variation among individuals in the population, as well as uh, how each individual is going to respond to the variation in temperature through time. So just to, to make sure that I'm understanding this, this is probably I'm not, but if we were to have all the money and time and personnel in the world, and we were to describe the thermal performance curves of every muscle in these rugs, I mean, then the data that we generate are, are reasonably reflective because any population measure we want to get is taken from the full complex trait of every individual that was in that in that pool, right? Yes, you, you could do that. Okay, and that would and that would get you halfway there. <laughs> Good. Okay. okay. <laughs> so that you, in that case, you could say, okay, if every individual in that, in that population experiences exactly the same history of, of thermal of, of of temperature through time, you could predict how the how the individual variation in physiology would affect the population. But knowing that in the real world, each individual is going to see a, a different uh, different history of of, vari of thermal variation, you've got to take that into account as well. Okay. And that's where it gets super complicated because what comprises history, I mean, there's just, in, in, including genetics, there's an endless number of things that one could, could think about. Yeah. Okay. So there, there's one statement that you said in there. This is a little bit of a, of a jump to another concept, Mark, but we'll try to put it all together. There's one statement in this paper that, that you made that I just thought was fascinating. And if there's more that you have to say, but I'd love to hear it. You, you claim that these thermal performance curves for integrative traits, and I think think the one that you talked about was something about reproduction, but I could be getting that wrong. But you said that those tend to be more symmetric around the optimal temperature than other things. So what other ones, what other traits are you talking about? Is that a general rule? And, and especially why do you think that happens? Uh, <laughs> good question. That, that was based on a paper that Joel Kingsolver and his, I can't remember who the co-author on that, was it you, Art? <laughs> no, it wasn't me, no. Okay. <laughs> you got to be careful here. Uh, they, they pointed that out. So uh, uh, there, you can measure the thermal performance curve for any, any measure of performance. So quite often, it, well, the, the, the classic one was running speed in lizards, all right? Uh, Ray Huey's stuff from back then. The other is, is metabolic rate or, or something like that. Uh, so those are sort of individual, uh, you know, short-term performance sorts of measurements. Uh, so for those, you, you have this general, you know, sort of a, a upward curve uh, increasing on the, on the low temperature side up to some peak and then a crash on the, on the top side, okay. But apparently, and I don't, I don't know the answer why, but if you look at things like, like a lifetime reproductive output uh, or things that are longer term lifetime sorts of things, uh, the, the curve isn't so, so gradual on the upside and then crashing on the high side, it's much more symmetrical. And it doesn't have that, uh, that, that uh, upward curve that you get from, from the Boltzmann, whatever, on, on the, uh, with, with uh, Q10 sorts of things. It just, it, it rises up, hits a peak, and then goes back down, but not quite as fast. Uh, so it, what shape that peak is, obviously the shape affects Jensen's inequality. And what shape that is depends on what metric you're using for performance. I just found it incredibly fascinating that integrative traits should, you know, have a different, or have be symmetric. Um, I mean, you, you could think that there's a whole bunch of compensation and, you know, because selection ultimately is acting on traits like this, you know, maybe, maybe that's part of the reason that you end up with a symmetry that wouldn't necessarily show up for things like metabolic rate where, so metabolic rate is low, but there are other ways to, you know, dormancy or whatever you could account for temperature effects. Oh yeah, no, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that you, it's just a statement of, again, the complexity of physiology. So if you're looking at well, something as simple, in quotes, uh, metabolic rate, uh, temperature affects chemical reactions and is going to go up with temperature, okay, uh, most of the time. 
Uh, but if you're looking at something really complicated like lifetime reproductive output, my God, that, that, that takes into, into account everything. And it, it's going to be have all sorts of, as you say, different compensation mechanisms and nonlinearities and everything that are going to govern the shape of that curve. I, I want to try to articulate a, a question that I've been wanting to ask you uh, since you know, reading up for this, this session that is a little bit of a tangent, um, but it has to do with your 2019 paper. And it's thinking about, uh, you know, mosaics of conditions that organisms experience across space and the, the sort of joint effects of body size and movement on that experience. And I, I guess here, here's the overall question. Do smaller organisms experience greater variability uh, in their spatial mosaics than than larger organisms, and and the sort of I think two things at play here, right? So as you imagine orders of magnitude and body size coming down, it feels like intuitively that there ought to be more local variation available to the smallest things, and yet at the same time those smallest things will have restricted movements, and so they can't exploit as much of the space that their population of their species occupies. So what, what's the effect of body size and on movement and, and experience? <laughs> well, you've done it again, Art. <laughs> great, great question. And, and I, I don't know the answer. Ah, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> this is one that, that uh, I have, have not had a lot of experience with because the things, muscles don't move around. Well, they move around absolutely minimally. Same with limpets. Uh, we've picked things that don't have behavior that affects uh, their, their thermal biology, for instance. Okay. Uh, now, the other one, you I mean, oh boy, that, does that bring memories of, of thinking about fractals, all right? Because uh, what we're talking about in terms of, of environmental or topographical variation, it's quite likely to be fractal, all right? So that, uh, you know, the smaller you are, the, the environment has variation at a whole bunch of scales. And the smaller you are, the more access you have to the variation at the smaller scales. So depending on what the fractal dimension of the environment is, uh, it's going to come into your question. Okay, so the, if, if things can, so let's say they have infinite amount, infinite capability to move, and you have a certain thermal environment, um, if they could just hide in, in a, say that you're worried about getting overheated, so they're searching around for a place to hide where the temperature is low. Uh, the smaller you are, the more variation you, you have available to you in which to hide. Now, how that scales with your size is going to depend on, on the factual dimension of the environment. And so I think the answer there is it all depends, like so many answers in biology. Now, but that's, you know, that's, uh, that, that one's going to get really complicated. I, and I, I, it's, it's one that, we, again, would be fun to, to really, really noodle out. Um, uh, now, you throw in, in you know, the, the limited capacity to move around. And boy, you've just upped up the game by another level of well, another dimension there as to, okay, there's this amount of variability in the environment. How much of it is available to you, given the random place in which you started uh, to do it? Uh, and I, you know, I, I don't know how that one's going to add in there. I think it's incredibly fun to think about, but I haven't, I haven't done the thinking because uh, we've, we specifically pick things that don't have behavior. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, which is a great advantage in these experiments, well, right? Well, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's nice, but it, as, you, as you point out, it's limiting that, that a lot of things do have behavior. And what that's going to tend to do, if, you, if you're just looking at the average, I mean, if, they're, if they get too cold, they'll move to, they'll bask in the sun. If they get too hot, they'll move to a crack or a crevice and cool down. 
Uh, so the variation, you would expect things to see if they have behavior, is to have less variation in temperature or whatever it is that you're looking at uh, than if you didn't have behavior. That is, if, if, if that lack of variation is a, is a good thing. Yeah, kind of Bogart effect beats Jensen's inequality here. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh. Well, hey, Art, so I don't, I don't know. This is weird because maybe I'm interviewing you, but what, what happens if you think about this at, the, at big body sizes? Right, because you know, by there's just a sort of thermal refugium where inertia just allows them to maintain. I mean, they're sort of independent from ambient temperature in a way that smaller things can't be. Yeah, no, for sure. And there's there's some famous papers by Stevenson, Swifty Stevenson, back in the kind of mid '80s that analyzed this for large ectotherms. And and one of the conclusions was that once you get above, I think it was about a kilogram of body size weight that the, the thermal lag for heating and cooling becomes so long that you actually start to escape the extremes because during the hottest part of the day, you don't, you don't reach your maximum body temperature before you start to cool down overnight. And likewise, you don't, you know, you don't go down super cold o- overnight. So yeah, there's definitely a thermal kind of inertia effect there. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think about this also in terms of, I mean, I, I like your, invocation of the fractal nature of the environment mark and I, I think of that in terms of like um you know an ant and say a giant beetle out on a field right the the ant surely is going to experience greater sort of local variation than the the beetle is um yeah i guess i guess i don't really have a, a question there so we'll, we'll just let that trail off um okay so 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 here's here's, here's a question a follow-up question about that um so i think you and i agree that that at the smallest scales, there is more variation available. There's more more thermal variation available to smaller organisms. Is is there a limit at the small end to that increase in in variability or not? And and I ask because um, you, you could imagine that you get it to some very small level, and the physical processes that transport heat becomes so dominant that like it sort of homogenizes things at that at that very small scale or, or am I just wrong is there is there really no lower limit to that no, no, no you're absolutely right and it particularly applies in in water for instance uh, where uh, uh, the conductivity of, of water is such that uh, temperature variation spatially you just can't maintain it okay uh, that's true of temperature but just the opposite is true of other things that would would matter uh, so for instance uh, we, uh, West and I just have been thinking about this in terms of, of uh, life in the ocean, uh, most of which is tiny. Uh, so if you look at the biomass of things in the ocean, 75% of it is less than, a, less than 100 microns in diameter. Okay. It's all the phytoplankton, bacteria, uh, you know, small things like that. Um, so you think that at that small scale, certainly temperature isn't going to vary you know, across the length of a bacterium. Uh, so it, 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 there's very little thermal variability. But what matters to a bacterium is how much food there is to eat. So if you've got a phytoplankton cell that they leak carbohydrates, which bacteria love. Uh, so if you're sitting there, uh, uh, say a 10 micron diameter phytoplankton leaking some carbohydrate, uh, it's gonna diffuse out. Uh, or let's take oxygen, for instance. Uh, if, you're, if you're a phytoplankton at night, there's no photosynthesis or you're consuming oxygen. Uh, so a, a bacterium is trying to home in on you to eat the carbohydrate. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's it's going to hit the the layer around the the, the, the phytoplankton cell where oxygen is being cons- uh, being absorbed. Um, so that bacterium, over the course of of 20 microns, can go from f- fully saturated oxygen to basically hypoxic 
uh, within a couple seconds. Okay, so because of the limits of, of, of diffusion at small scale, uh, uh, things can hit this. Really tiny things can hit uh, spatial gradients and things that matter to them that are orders of magnitude larger than things that are bigger. And now, true, that only applies to things like bacteria and phytoplankton cells. Uh, but in terms of the, I mean, the oceans are 95% of the biosphere on Earth, and 75% of the organisms in the bio, in that bios, in that that habitat are the, these small things. So that incredibly uh, concentrated gradient at small size is what probably governs a whole lot of what goes on in the ocean. Yeah. So that that implies that the sort of granularity of the environment depends at some level on like, you know, the diffusivity of the, whatever the currency is you're talking about, right? The, the transport processes affecting it. Right. So, super cool. Now, it, it's a strange thing that that, that that size scale, it's independent of the medium you're in. So air is 10,000 times more diffuse than water, uh, but the, 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 the gradients are the same size. <laughs> but it's just that in air, you don't have the small organisms to take advantage of it or, or to put up with it. Uh, so it's, I, don't, I wouldn't think it had, enters into anything in terms of, well, only peripherally in terms of terrestrial uh, environments. But if you're in, a, in an aquatic medium, all of a sudden, small things see variation that large things don't Wow. on, on steroids. That's amazing. I, I wanted to move on to something else, and yet I, I have so many more questions about that. <laughs> I'm sensitive to your time, Mark, so I'm going to go with the, the former, and let's, let's talk about the application and the implications of the things we've been covering for the last 20 minutes or so. Um, Back to back to climate change, I, I I hope we've made the point that thinking about variation um, in the context of climate change is as important with the compound events and these sorts of things. I'm I'm on board with that as a phenomenon that we need to pay more attention to. Do you have ideas about, you know, how, how we manage and mitigate climate change in that context? Are they different from what we're thinking and talking about doing now? Tough question. Um, other than trying to continually point out to to physiologists, ecophysiologists, uh, uh, and, and the people who, who do the climate modeling, uh, that these small, that the variation matters, and, and, the, and the physiology associated with variation matters. Pointing out to them is, is I think, the best thing that I can think of to, uh, to affect what's going on in the future, is that you know, these simple predictions based on, uh, well, uh, the information we have now uh, can be misleading. Uh, I mean, the, the classic example, I suppose, is uh, back when ecophysiologists were just taking into account uh, the mean temperature. You had predictions as to how, how uh, uh, climate change was going to affect species diversity latitudinally. Uh, get one prediction. But then if you take into account uh, the variation as well as, the, you take Jensen's inequality into account, the variation as well as the average, you get the opposite prediction. So that, so that uh, uh, there's a huge example there. Of just applying the you know, the sort of first level cut of thinking about this, and that's without thinking about the physiology on top of it. You can you can get really non-intuitive, non-obvious uh, differences depending on what appear like small things in the mechanism. That's a slippery slope. You you, you we don't want to get down to okay, we can't do anything uh, policy-wise until the genomics people tell us how these things are going to react. That's that's we don't want to go down that 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 downward spiral. Uh, but at some point, we have to meet in the middle where we, we think we know enough about the, the small scale, not mechanics, or at least what, you know, what, how you poke the black box, how the, how the other, how, what the output is, uh, to, to, to extrapolate up rather than just, just going willy-nilly with, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the, how the average changes and, and 
and progress with that. Well, one, a, a question for you, you know, in light of, of preserving the variation, and, and you sort of alluded to the, you know, once we have genomics of a bunch of different species that could be informative, it will be informative. But Art and I, another thing that we beat up in this show is genetic determinism. And not to say that sequencing isn't important, but things aren't so simple as we, as we touched on in the past. What do you think about the value of conserving? So for species with broad distributions, and not everything has that, but for species that do have broad distributions, is there an argument to be made for conserving those parts or paying special attention to those parts of the distribution where the environment is that much more variable? I mean, presumably by whatever mechanism those organisms are coping with that, that's the kind of thing that would be useful to see to other places. You do, absolutely. I think I hadn't really thought about it, but I think you're absolutely right. Uh, that, that variability will, will maintain uh, variability in, in the genetic ability to cope with variability. <laughs> that was, I, I probably should state that one better. Physiologically or, or genetically, the ability to, to cope with variation uh, is going to lead to, to uh, sort of uh, money in the bank when, when extreme events happen. And, and it's always good to have money in the bank. Uh, so yes, I think uh, maintaining uh, 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 a species, the part of its environment that is, is variable. Now, I wouldn't just look for the, the most extreme temperature and say, okay, let's see what happens there. Uh, uh, some variability there needs to, to be thrown into the mix as well. ask you to put on a slightly different kind of socio-political hat, if you will. Um, I've been thinking some, I think like many of us in the last couple of years, about existential threats to humans and human civilization, you know, just because we've had so many major things, things happening. Um, I want to apply your thinking about uh, underlying statistical distributions and extreme events to, to human civilization. So if we had to sort of think about what the worst threats are to us, um, you know, you can imagine lots of climate disasters of various kinds, but you can also imagine that there's, you know, other stuff that's happening at some statistical level. So, um, you know, political change, uh, wars, pandemics, um, these things come and go. Can we conceive of those in the same way so that those are like underlying time series? And, and could you put together these sort of climatic things with more sociopolitical time series in order to try to predict the frequency of sort of really bad things coming together, like, you know, climate disasters and pandemics and political instability all, all at the same time. Some, some place you're willing to go? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm willing to go there as long as you don't take what I say with, with any, any credence. Um, <laughs> Art, I'd really have to think about that one. Um, I'm trying to think about how you just, just mechanistically apply things. So uh, thinking about, uh, okay, what part of, another way of expressing the mean is it's the expectation. You're slightly different, but it's the expectation. So trying to describe what you would expect of policy, of civilization, of reaction to pandemics or wars. Um, I assume that historians think that one through, political scientists do, but I don't know how, how what those those generalizations look like? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't just wouldn't know what to expect. I mean, if you poke civilization or this civilization this way, uh, how to how to even describe what you would expect it to do? I, and I might be asking for science fiction here. I mean, this this actually literally does kind of remind me of um, 
if you know the Asimov's Foundation trilogy, but Harry Seldon develops, you know, like he's a psychohistorian, right? So he's trying to predict the the future of, you know, human civilizations based on sort of statistical aggregated, you know, hu- human actions. And, and maybe it's just sci-fi, but I, I had to ask. Well, no, that, that's an interesting one to point out. But in, in that, you've got the mule who, right, everything works fine. They've got these incredibly accurate predictions. Yeah, there's always the mule. But there's always, always the mutation that, that comes in and, and throws a wrench into it. I mean... Look at World War II. Uh, I mean, uh, if it if it had happened any other time relative to the the quantum mechanics revolution, you wouldn't it wouldn't have ended up with the atomic bomb. Uh, and how different it would have been uh, if that hadn't been part of the mix, uh, or uh, you know the airplane for Christ's sake. <laughs> I mean, that was only you know what thirty years after the Wright brothers, thirty five years after the Wright brothers that that World War II started. And and if you hadn't had the capability you know, for the Germans, to, you know, the Blitzkrieg depended on that. Uh, and, and the bombing, you know, it, it, you know, technology, which you wouldn't necessarily have been able to predict, uh, totally changed how that, uh, those wars came out. So, uh, you know, I, you, oh boy, I, you, you put a whole bunch of sleepless nights in my head, Art. Thanks for that. <laughs> well, well, we'll talk again next year once you've got it all worked out. How's that? There you go. <laughs> What kind of experiments do you want me to do in the meantime? Come on. <laughs> um, so, Mark, really, thank you for this. Um, we, we always sort of close out with uh, a question, that a broad thing, just to give you the chance to say anything that we didn't ask you. So is there anything else that you would like to say? Not really. I think that, that one of the things that, that uh, uh, this has brought home to me is, is the, the necessity for at least some sort of mechanistic predictions along the way. And so to me, that's, that's the, the take home here is that there's this big, big important step uh, that we need to, uh, this hurdle that we need to get over. Uh, and uh, unless we think that genomics is going to get us there, and I, I think you guys are on board with me that, that it, it, straight genomics isn't going to do it, uh, we need to start paying more attention and pouring more money into uh, the hard work uh, to do the physiology. Uh, I mean, if you think about that, that's, it's, it's hopeful in a way, but it's also scary. Uh, that, that that's going to involve a shift in funding, a shift in attitude, uh, a shift in, in how fast we think things can get done. Uh, that's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, but I think it's a shift that, that if we're going to move forward, we need to make. Yeah, thank you. That was that was wonderful. Yeah, this has been fun. You've stretched my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology, our first of season four. It's so good to be back. To support the show, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter or Facebook or a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also help us reach an even wider audience by recommending this podcast to a friend or spreading the word on social media. As a nonprofit, we rely on your help to reach more people. On the next episode, we talk with Adriana Briscoe, an evolutionary biologist at UC Irvine who studies the evolution of color vision. Her work focuses on understanding the origins and diversification of opsin genes in insects. Thank you to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demry for producing the episode. And a big welcome to our new Big Biology interns who will be joining us in producing the next episode. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear. <laughs>